1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Equity I will
2: say this about investing. Everything you do learn is similar. What I learned at 20 is you
1: equity mates episode number 23 part two this is the first time we are going weekly back-to-back weekly yeah very exciting times it is exciting this is the podcast where we break down the world of investing to try and make it easy for you guys and as always i'm joined with my equity buddy Ren. In the same room today, yeah. how are you? I am very good, Rice. All the better to be seeing you rather than talking to you guy. It is yeah. it is nice. So, it was your birthday on Saturday, Friday, happy yeah. birthday. Thanks, mate, appreciate it. So, you're up in Sydney for the weekend and uh, it's yeah nice to be in the same room. Yeah,
0: and what better way to celebrate your birthday than to do a podcast? How good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, this week we've got Michael D, part two. Yeah, hopefully.
1: Hope everyone enjoyed part one. Yes. Yeah, he's uh, an interesting character, Um, had some good things to say, interesting things to say, his take on on the market uh, is a bit different to some of the other people that we've interviewed and what's he going to bring in this episode?
0: Yeah, so he's going to continue that trend of uh, bringing some different thoughts to the table. Uh, This time we talk about his experience during the global financial crisis where he started his fund right in the midst of the market bottoming out. Uh, And we also talk about some of the things he's looking at today, because it seems that people never learn, and we continue to make the same mistakes. Um, uh, Listener bag? Oh yeah, we get a listener question. Um, (laughs) The very last question was submitted during the interview, so everyone
1: can hold out and hear who the lucky listener was. Yeah, nice. So, last week I mentioned that we were going to be offering some sort of competition Uh, this week. So it is with great pleasure that we go live today with our Equity Mates and Belmont Securities $500 competition. So as of right now, it is live online. Uh, You can enter through our website. So just to give you guys a quick rundown on what we're offering. So we've partnered up with Belmont Securities, uh, which is a fund management company, uh, and they have graciously given up $500 to invest with them uh, to either kick off your investing journey or to continue on with it, uh, your journey. So it's open to anyone who is interested in investing and uh, starting off, or as I said, if you if you already are and want to add $500 to your portfolio, this is how you can do it. All you need to do is enter your details on our website at equitymates.com forward slash win500. Uh, and that is 500, not 500 in letters and words. <laughs> <laughs> um, equimates.com forward slash win 500. Enter your details. And also, you need to share the Facebook um, competition post. Yeah. Um, so, make sure you, you jump on and, and do that. That will be on our Facebook page. Uh, and then the competition is going to run for a month. And then we will randomly choose a winner. Uh, And that person then will liaise with Belmont and have the opportunity to invest through their platform. You're going to get um, $500 as well as reduced brokerage, which is a a great incentive as well. Um, So we're pretty excited. Um, this is something that we have been working on and hopefully if it's successful, we'll be, uh, bigger things to come, maybe 10 grand in the future. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Well, you know, we need to see everyone out there sharing it. Yeah. So, uh, they give us more money next time. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so it's very easy. There's nothing you guys have to do. There's no 25 words or less or anything no, like that. No, Just simply like that. enter your details and share the post and, you're in with a chance um, of winning 500 bucks to to go and invest. So, Yeah, what a better way to bring in Christmas than to give yourself a nice present of $500 worth of shares. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, just a, a bit of a caveat... Um, we will not be offering any advice on what to invest in, so don't no, ask us well, on that. as we
0: always say, we never offer advice on the show, yep. so we'll continue our trend of not offering advice <laughs> with this competition. <laughs>
1: but uh, hopefully you can use some of the things we've discussed to help form your own opinion. So yeah. jump on equitymates.com forward slash win500, or it'll be through our Facebook or Twitter feeds. Uh, there'll be some competition. But as of now, it's live Ren. Ren and I are not entering, so... Yeah. We put in the conditions that we cannot win, in case you're wondering, um, so,
0: yeah. Unless no one enters, then it's up between me Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so,
1: you better enter, because otherwise we'll take it. <laughs> All jokes aside, yeah, jump on. Um, it's going to run for a month, so uh, the opportunity's there. You can only enter once, though, so... Yeah, yeah, but, you
0: know, get your mum and your dad to enter
1: as well, and your brother and sister, so... Do we have age brackets that go up for mum and dad age?
0: Yeah, yeah, anyone can enter.
1: We're, we're an all-inclusive podcast here. Yeah, yeah. so please read Terms and Conditions. Jump on. Um, it's uh, We're pretty excited. And obviously, a big thank you to Belmont Securities. Um, jump on and check them out, belmontsecurities.com.
0: All right. Well, then, without any further ado, or actually one more bit of ado, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you haven't already, make sure you sign up to Equitymates Thought Starters. Yeah. Uh, and if you've signed up but you're not getting it, Check your junk mail. We've been, <laughs> we've, been we've been hearing that it's been going to junk mail. And while it might be going to junk mail, it's definitely not junk. So <laughs> so save it. Make sure you sign up. Yeah, we'll of,
1: troubleshoot that.
0: Yeah, we um we had some very interesting articles last week and uh, we've got some crackers coming up again this week, so uh, you don't want to miss it.
1: Yeah, we talk about junk bonds, but that's the only thing that's junk in that. yeah, so, yeah. there, <laughs> So yeah, check your junk email um, and we'll troubleshoot that over the week. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah.
0: But uh, while we're troubleshooting that, you can enjoy an excellent second part of an interview with Michael D. Yeah. So, enjoy.
1: So, you mentioned in there that one of the blog pieces on your website was 12 early indicators of the GFC and you mentioned we're not quite there yet. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Do you think we're coming towards another one? Uh,
2: look, I think the
1: ultimate answer is yes, there will be one. Um, but I
2: want to just uh, backtrack a little bit. The, the cause of the first GFC, if you just leave all of the CDOs and the, uh, the banking crisis and the credit crisis, just leave all that aside, the thing that caused the um, GFC was greed, and the building up of greed. So okay. my my perspective is is this that where I see those factors in micro form, and I, I talk about those twelve factors, where I see those things building. So, for example, one of them is uh, countries cutting foreign aid. Well, I see that as an extreme version of greed, and I and I have a personal belief that richer countries should be. Um, helping the poorer countries all along the way. But I see nothing but Australia cutting its foreign aid. Um, I have a personal disgust for what's happened on Manus Island, um, but that's a topic for another day. But that—that that is one single example of something that I view as greed and a build-up of greed. So, you know, my view is very much that we we have some of the factors building and some of them beginning and some of them very well established. I'll, list, I'll let it uh, up to you and your uh, your readership or your viewership um, to make their own judgments because the list is very much like that. You could adapt it to the way you see the world.
1: But I would have thought
2: we, we are reasonably okay but building in our greed levels right now.
1: Mm, mm. Interesting. So let's move on to... Harvesting Funds, which was a boutique investment firm that you set up prior to the GFC in 2008 because you actually saw the GFC yeah. coming. Um, so can you just give us a bit of an idea of what it was like to set up at that time and, and what were some of the indicators that made you sort of foresee this GFC? Yeah, Sure.
2: You know, a lot of the industry said, geez, Michael, this is uh, this is a terrible time to be setting up uh, funds management outfit. And uh, I could see nothing but a blessing, because uh, if there was ever a time where you wanted to start your track record, you really want to start it when everybody's been king hit. Uh, In this period of time, the VIX, I don't know whether you guys have looked at the VIX volatility at all. Um, but there's an index in the Chica- Chicago Board of Trade called the VIX, and it was a big focus of people's attention at that time because it had historically traded about ten to fifteen percent and it's and it's meant to be a predictor, uh, no, it's not a predictor. It's meant to be a mathematical summary of the risk present on a given day as backed out. Of the options series on the CBOE. Now, I'll pause and just see if you got that. Not
0: 100. percent. <laughs> okay. So what they what they do is
2: they look at all all the options, both near dated and long dated, both long and short. You know, puts and calls. Yeah. And they look at the implied volatility, and then they create this thing called the VIX. Have a have a look at it. You'll be interested just to know what it is. Uh, it was typically trading at between 10 and 15 percent, and it had done for years. That VIX was 90 percent and 110 percent at the height of um, the GFC. Now, what that means is that any stock could have been up or down by 90 percent in the coming days. That that was what the the real meaning of the VIX was, and and that was clearly insane. Yeah. So so I, I resigned QIC in uh, April of 08 and went about all of the legal proceedings to get started and get our seed funding um, all sorted, some of which I already had in my under my hat. I called the capital in September of 08. So um, this was a pretty hairy time, and I called it for the 16th of October, and now, not every seed investor could hold the faith, but those who did were inv- were really rewarded very, very significantly. So what we did, once we had our capital, we knew, uh, we had a very good idea how we believed the volatility would reduce. And um, for for the sake of the discussion, we believed it was going to be in three waves. So what we did was we began investing very heavily in November eight through to February nine. And I found a, a letter that I'd written to our clients December 508, 08, um, basically saying we, we believed that the worst was over. And the recovery began in February of 09. So our returns in that first year were 26.3%, which was either top or second top in Australia at that time, when the market was down uh, 8.7 on the same same period. So that the Great thing from our point of view is the capital drawdowns were almost non-existent. Um, we literally didn't lose money, and you know, for us, the courage and conviction that we were able to draw was from the early work we had done on Pythagoras. Mm. So, so we'd outperformed 35 at that time, and really, that was the that was the point at which I knew this needed to be um, pushed and released. Wow! Uh, so. You know, the, the the reality is, and I can talk more about the GFC and, and what that was about, it, you know, in the lead up to the GFC, we, we'd anticipated what we thought was going to happen. But you see, I don't know whether you've read about it or know about it, the backdrop really was credit was incredibly easy to obtain. Now you make your own judgment as to whether you believe that's the case today. Uh, yeah, rates, yeah. rate, rates were very low, and that's certainly the case today. Yeah, um, there was an excess of capital, and risks were ignored. And I don't think you can say the same today in terms of risks being ignored. So in my world, all of those things amounted to um, what I call spawning weapons of massive destruction, and <laughs> and that they they were the CDOs they became incredibly illiquid once the markets uh, weakened right? and the subprime turned feral in actual fact in August of '07, and that was that was the point at which credit flows dried up and the whole thing turned really very nasty from there the credit crisis turned to a banking crisis and that's pretty much September '08, which is where we started um, harvesting and and literally banks around the world faced meltdown, and this is where a lot of the recovery uh, really had to happen. Mm, mm. When you look at it, I I researched it at the time, there were 150 years of history, and in that one year we had a, a credit crunch, we had a global banking crisis, we had massive losses on shares, we had losses on houses, house prices, we had losses on commodity markets, and we had massive moves in monetary and fiscal policy. We had all six. And in any other period of history, one of them was a catastrophe. So we were in uncharted territory.
0: Yeah, wow. So mm. you touched on um, CDOs just before, um, and so those were collateralized debt obligations where the, the mortgage brokers and, and the banks would uh, put a whole lot of mortgages together and on-sell on sell them as a financial product. Yep. you you recently written a piece on the Pythagoras website where you wrote that banks in 2017 have started creating CLOs or collateralized <laughs> loan obligations. Now, can you believe it? Yeah, uh, <laughs> are, we, are we?
2: Someone was paid a lot of money for that. Yeah, time, yeah very creative. <laughs> <there>. <laughs> and, 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 and I can believe
1: it.
0: Are they a CLOs just CDOs with a different name? Yeah, that that's really the point of
2: the article. Um, you know, when I think about them, they're both sophisticated financial tools um, that as you said banks used to repackage the loans and sell them on Um, both of them allow the banks to not have to worry about collecting on them because they are not owned by the bank anymore so those two facts are very true Um, for cdo's it was that the discipline in in their lending standards dropped and um, they were lending to people on street corners without jobs and so that was definitely the case. Now, to me, this is what's to come, and I think in that article I refer to it as a crack. Um, with CLOs, we, know, we don't yet have the evidence that says they don't care about credit quality, but they were meant to be expressly not able to onsell the last piece of risk, but they've been able to do that. They've got around that, and so that means... They, the propensity to not care about the collectability is, is beginning. And the last piece of CDOs were they were so complex that even though the rating agencies were paid a lot of money to rate them, no one knew how to value them. Mm. And, and that's yet to come with the CLOs. Um, so, that, so, yeah, that probably um, explains my point of view.
0: Yeah, the, that reading your blog post really worried me because – um, I'm not sure if you saw UBS's recent report in the Australian housing market about liar loans, or the amount of people that are lying on their mortgages to get approved. And I think in isn't that, that
2: about two thirds?
0: Yeah, yeah, it was. It was something ridiculous. Yeah, it's worrying. And you know, yeah. you, you start to think if there's that many, you know, liar loans or people misstating their income and their assets to get these loans. And then we have a situation where the banks are collateralizing them and then on selling that, those, you know, sort of dodgy loans to other unsuspecting investors, you really all you need to have a repeat of what happened in 08 is uh, the rating agencies to just be giving everything five stars and sort of be looking the other way. And then it seems like all the ingredients are sort of bubbling back up to the surface again.
2: The cracks are beginning to appear. The the only thing that I, I would add to that that diffuses it slightly is even though brokers as a percentage of the Australian market have grown, the lie alone is not a new thing. People have been lying on their mortgage applications for a long time. But I think the feature of the local mortgage broker who helps you fill out the form if you understand the subtext um, is probably a bigger and stronger feature in this last decade than it was in the previous decade. Um, but I can't disagree with you. It is um, it is actually a little bit of a worrying um, feature of the market. The, the other thing that I would add to that was you, it doesn't take much for rates to move. You know, the oldies talk about when I was a boy, rates were 17% and you couldn't pay your mortgage and, you know, it was a disaster. And we're talking about the 80s here um, we, and they say, you wait, uh, rates will be up there again one day. But the truth of it is, if rates increased by 2%, it would have the same effect. Disaster. Um, yeah. And, and we're starting to see this in the UK. You know, we, we had a, effectively a doubling of rates in the, U- in the UK. So as soon as you start to see that ratcheting back up, housing markets are going to have to react.
0: Um, I mean, it doesn't even have to be a reserve bank interest rate increase, though. Because the amount of um, interest-only investors who, um, you know, five years into their loan, it ticks over to start paying off the principal as well, and then the yeah. you know, the monthly repayments all of a sudden shoot up. It's it's you know you can draw parallels between that and the the teaser rates that were offered by American mortgage brokers in the in the mid two thousands as well.
2: Yeah, good point. Very good.
1: Hey everyone. Good point.
0: Mm. so we 'll we'll move, we'll move away from the, the, all the talks of you know crashes and the morbid talk about <laughs> what might happen um, yep. going, going back to harvesting, I, I read in an, uh, in an article that you, you actually only invest in five sectors, and um, those particular sectors display long term growth characteristics and are not typically sensitive to the economic cycle. Now we don't want you to give away any of your sort of proprietary secrets or anything, but um, can you tell us what what those five sectors are?
2: Oh, guys,
0: Uh (laughs) (laughs) maybe Um, just one, just as, as a little as a little taste
2: look the, the 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 truth of it is you need to be right down you can't really have a heading there you actually need to be right down in the in the bowels of the um, individual companies um, so so I'll probably leave that one aside if you don't mind no, that's fair. Um, yeah look I, I think if you took uh, if we leave harvesting aside for the minute with Pythagoras um, and, and Harvesting is effectively shut to the public now, so we, you know, we don't even really um, worry too much about that, other than um, whoever's there still. Look, in Pythagoras, we understand volatility totally, and and in actual fact, my attitude towards this has changed entirely. In that we go after volatility. We're not interested in working on big and boring um, stocks because you can do that yourself. Um, where people really need help is when they want to go after a bigger return and look for um, look for real growth. So, so our focus and my focus has changed away from that um, avoiding um, risk to actually going after it. Because the truth of it is, you can still make good money, and you need volatility to be able to make it. Uh, so. Look, the nine sectors now that I look at, uh, which might give you a few little hints as to your original question, um, infrastructure enablers. So they are the literally the builders of this country and others um, sports and entertainment, which is definitely economically sensitive, uh, agriculture, even though there's a long term uh, fundamental uh, secular growth within it. It has near-term uh, changeability in terms of weather and seasonal um, characteristics and rain and so on and so forth. Uh, we we spend a lot of time in mining. Uh, we do a little bit of work on banks, but I really only maintain one bank for fun. I'm not really a big fan of the banking <laughs> sector. <laughs> um, and I do a little bit, uh, we do a little bit with uh, diversified financials and healthcare and even biotech. So, the attitude and the and the approach is quite different. We do that with big and small companies.
1: Interesting. So that's you didn't really mention technology overall there, or well, I mean,
2: that's it's not been famous. a focus. You know, uh, if you look at the Australian market, technology as a segment is actually very very small. Yeah. And genuine technology is really US centric. Yeah. Uh, and what we really are here is. Um, Enablers. So we might do the um, installation, and we might do uh, we might even do that very very well. But in terms of investment opportunities, um, they come and go, but they tend not to be high value add. They tend to be lower barrier to entry, and you know one of the things that I've historically looked for is decent barriers to entry. So you've at least got mm. a chance when things go
1: wrong. So is Pythagoras then from a retail investor perspective, if we were to um, sign up and say choose one, the one stock option is those are those options purely domestic?
2: They are at the moment. okay. We're actually we're looking um, at New Zealand, but that won't help you terribly much um, as a step and then to the UK. I, I'm not particularly interested in the US. I um history, you know, 25 years of looking at companies investing in the U.S. tells me that um, it's more trouble than it's worth. And I want to add to that that I think the U.S. is actually pretty stuffed. And I, yeah. I actually, yeah, I don't see a great reason to be there for investors. I would rather be in England, um, Germany, France, you know, anything with a little bit of um, opportunity to grow rather than worry about the U.S. for a while or even Canada, to be honest, there'd be a better opportunity.
0: So, given how bullish you were about China earlier, is China somewhere you'd look to expand this service to?
2: No, categorically not. Um, Now, I'm going to make a gross generalisation, so forgive me for anyone who's who's listening who might be offended. (laughs) Um, If you watch the Chinese stock market, it resembles a casino. It isn't... It not fundamentally based or it isn't even logically based it's it's operating on different facets Mm. so again I don't see a need to be involved in that Um, and I have a great weariness about operating in China there's a lot of regulation there's a lot of stipulation and there's a lot of IP that goes missing in China and I quite frankly don't need that Mm. so there you go if I've offended anyone sorry
1: So I've got to, just back to a bit of a, a basics question say hypothetically you know we've been talking a lot about a potential correction coming say it comes in 2018 what's some sort of preparation that that we could do to ready ourselves to to take advantage or is there a key action that you found uh, important when you saw the GSC coming from a retail perspective that we could put in place uh, have you got a mattress?
2: Cash, <laughs> <laughs> cash. Stick <laughs> your cash under the mattress and don't tell anyone where you live. Um, no, that's t- tongue in cheek. Look, you have to be uh, depending on how you're investing, and and uh, if you're investing for big superannuation, and I was investing in the billions, um, you've got to you've got an obligation to be invested to a certain level. So there are certain things you can and can't do. As a retail investor, the moment you start to hear a taxi driver give you top stock advice, please sell everything you own, because that's another thing that happened in the lead up to um, um, the GFC. When a taxi driver starts to tell you which stocks to own, um, sell. And I'm not even really being tongue in cheek there. It's 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 quite a funny story, but anyway, one for another day. If you're interested in in options, you can take protection through options, although that really only helps you in big stocks. But this is part of the reason why I talk about geopolitical. It doesn't really help me terribly much, but it's something that I'll continue to write about because the truth of it is I'm trying to help. And Mm. if I can, at the right time, put that information out there and... And have people, perhaps like yourself or your um, your listeners, uh, even take a little bit of interest and say, you know what? There's that one or two stocks that I just didn't feel comfortable with at the moment. Now's as good a time as any after hearing that or reading that um, to put the money in the bank. You'd never get it perfectly right, mm-hmm. but if you if you just happen to be a bit more cautious and a bit more conservative at that point, then or oh, even better. Uh, the next thing is, a lot of people in in the pre-GFC stage were big into lending and investing in shares. Now, if you do it, don't admit to it right now, um, but it was massive, gearing against your shares. Now, the truth of the stock market is, if you haven't got it to lose, don't invest it. And so, the maximum it can hurt you is whatever capital you've put aside to be involved.
1: Yeah, good advice.
2: And I can tell you, uh, I wasn't immune to that. And when you wake up in the morning and and uh, there's a telephone call at 8.30 to say, would you please deposit $62,000 or $110,000 into our account to cover the margin calls, uh, your stomach hits the floor mighty fast. Yes.
1: God, and, I can't and imagine. It,
2: and it's an experience I never want to repeat and so I'm giving you some you know some experience of, of my own um, it, it, when things like that are happening you see what I'm talking about with greed yeah uh, and yeah. people are doing that to such an extent they obviously just believe that this is going up and up forever mm. and I only had I, I was down to only two stocks but the movement was so quick during that period that even though I, I felt pretty confident I was covered, the, the stock price moves were just massive. So avoid that at all costs. And I think the other thing is when you get into that situation, you keep your powder dry and you wait till the opportunity to be invested happens. Because a lot of people, money burns a hole in their pocket. I don't know whether you've noticed that. But when one of your mates, you watch him, when he gets a bonus, and he's got, I don't know, an extra 10,000 or 15,000 or whatever the number is, and they're an investor, they don't want to wait, they want to invest with the momentum of the market. And it's one of the things that I've always been big on. When everybody else is buying, I'd rather wait until it's all over. And when they're selling to me on the way down going, oh my God, it's going to hell in a handbasket. I'd rather be there with my pocket full of cash saying, okay, I'll have a bit of that. I may, not have, yeah, I may not have found the bottom, but I know I'm a damn sight closer than what they did. So to me, that's intuitive investing. That's what we do. Uh, mm. What everybody else is doing to me is counterintuitive. Buying when everybody else thinks it's going up and then they end up selling because they don't understand what they own. So mm, and that mm. and that would be the next thing. If you're going to do this long-term investing, and if you're going to do this fundamental investing, please, whatever you buy, understand what it is. Because the number of people who I met in and around the GFC time, I met one guy who had lost one hundred million dollars, oh. and and oh. and he uh, he had one particular stock which was Macquarie Bank, where he said that bloody broker lost me nine million on that one stock and I said what did you do and he said well I took it over and I said and that what happened and he said well I lost 13 million so that was minus 25 million he'd lost on Macquarie Bank um, so you know <laughs> it pays to be a little cautious at, at times but he didn't really when I sat down and I explained to him in a very basic way what it is that Macquarie Bank was he was actually quite shocked he thought it was a trading bank huh. and he had no concept that it was actually an investment bank. And when I explained to him that an investment banking deal should be on a PE of one or a price earnings ratio, if that makes sense to you, of one, yeah, and a, tr- yeah. And a trading bank probably ought to um, be on a trading multiple of 12 or 14. And then I just showed him the divisional breakup. You know, I wasn't a banking expert by any um, stretch But when I showed him what it was that they made their money on, um, he just about turned purple on the spot. So, yeah, my point is understand what it is you own.
1: Well, my next question was going to be what is one thing that you wished people understood a bit better when they first started out investing? So would that be it or did you have something else to add?
2: When they're first starting out – if if you're going to be a fundamental investor which i categorically don't think it's you know the the smartest thing you've you have to understand what it is that makes that company tick and then you must understand the prevailing winds and um and and critical geopolitical events that are going to come sweeping past and change whatever that fundamental view you have for that particular stock is and And once you understand that, when you see those winds come, you'll know what to do. So you'll actually have the opportunity to double your bet or or um, increase the size of your bet. So it all comes about in terms of knowledge. But guys, the problem is knowledge this day and age is actually almost infinite. you yeah. You could spend you could spend all your day reading about the banking sector and reading about the banking sector internationally and still when that critical event comes for your bank stock, whether that's ComBank or Macquarie Bank or whatever it is, you're still going to get caught. So it, it it really does puzzle me as to how people can do this without understanding not only the company, but also that geopolitical perspective that, that I really think is quite amazingly important.
1: Yeah.
0: So, Michael, we'll, we've almost reached our um, final three questions that we try and end every interview with. But yep. bef- before we get there, um, what, what are the best places our listeners can go to find out more about you and to read some of the things that you're working on? Um, and, you know, if you have any social media that they can follow you on, um, where, where can they find that?
2: Look, uh, the best place is pythagorasinvesting.com. Um, we have a, we have a Facebook page and you're welcome and any of your, um, your listeners are welcome to post to that, any questions or, um, on our website, there's a contact us. If you leave your, your question, we'll, um, get back to you and try and help out. Um, look, if you've got an interest in, in a, a basic guide to investing, we've got one of those on the website, um which is actually not a bad, again, it's sort of a dozen pages and it just runs through all of those from basic to more complex uh, issues when people are starting out. And as I say, we've got that deep dive on conflicts of interest for those that are interested. And I'm going to release a white paper on capital raisings um, in the near future as well. So, you know, if people are interested, they're welcome to grab those. Certainly, um, it's easy for us to in Victoria to have a chat to people if they're interested in in knowing more, either on the phone or in person. Interstate, we do uh, more telephone work, and for the very big clients, we we'll, we jump on a plane, of course. So um, there's plenty there, and if it interests you, we're always delighted
1: to chat. Nice, thanks for that, Michael. So our first uh, question of the final three: What's a book that you would consider a must-read and it doesn't have to necessarily be related to investing? <laughs>
2: okay. <laughs> um, I, I've read hundreds of books. I'm, I'm a big reader. Um, I love Lee Child and James Patterson and Vince Flynn and, and lots of others, but that's not the question, that's not the answer uh, you'd be expecting I'd give. The truth of it is I've read a lot of those investment books um, books. I've read a lot about um, Buffett. I actually yeah. don't think any of those things are going to give you what you need um, to be a, a better investor. It, it might give you some of the basics to be more able to fundamentally analyze. Um, but I, I seriously, um, I, d- I couldn't recommend one that would help you um, all that much uh, other than to say oh, I just love um fiction.
0: (laughs) So, uh, second question, what is your go-to source for investing information?
2: Yeah, look, of course, the way we work is all mathematical. So, I would have to say it's the maths. It's the share price and then it's the maths. Um, In terms of where would I, if I was in your shoes, where would I go? In terms of websites, you know, there are so many of them. It's ridiculous. But if you start with Bloomberg and uh, work your way out, and look at the um, English press as well. Uh, you could get a you, what you can access these days is incredible by comparison to any other period um, in history thus far.
1: And finally, if you were to give your your younger self uh, a piece of advice, investing or otherwise, um, what would that have been?
2: Yeah, okay, that's a good one too. Uh, first thing, I wouldn't waste capital on big and boring. So, um, okay. and these are th- this is from an investment point of view. I'm not talking about girls here. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I I wouldn't bother investing for dividends. That's my personal thing. I, I believe um, more in companies that invest for growth, and um, so I don't I don't go after dividends ever. Uh, okay. I would seriously um, not buy a house, I'd rent a house and and I would invest astutely and then I'd buy one with cash. Um, I'd buy the shittiest, most clapped out car and drive it for a very long time rather than buy anything um, terribly expensive and I'd rather put that money to um, better uses. And when the opportunity came, I would be the boldest investor you would ever see and I would be investing at the time where most people were really very scared. And uh, guys, I did all of those things and uh, and it was a very good thing for me to do. But if I was doing all of that again today, I'd scrape together the 20 or 10 or 30,000 bucks and I would I would get into a couple of mining stocks or a, or a biotech stock using Pythagoras. And I'd be set... To riches before long. Fair enough. Okay, <well>, good
1: good <laughs> advice.
0: <laughs> good. Oh, <stuff. laughs> uh, <laughs> So we we've had we've had one late question come in. So when you were talking about the Vix, uh, uh, we've got a friend who we have to give a shout out to Maxim, uh, who is is a little bit obsessed with the Vix, and he has a question for you about it. He wanted me yeah. to ask you. Um, what are your thoughts on central banks selling VIX options to suppress downside movements in the market and what will happen when this ends? <laughs> Feel free to take that any way that you want to. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, that. Sorry, just the the central banks selling...
0: Selling VIX options v- to suppress yep, downside so that- movements in the market. I mean, I, I don't know. Yep. I don't know what he's talking yeah, yeah. about, but he seems huh? to... <laughs>
2: He seems to understand it. Righto. So for Max, let me just put, put it this way. The, the GFC was, in effect, a massive financial manipulation. And what this seems to me to be is an extraordinarily mischievous financial manipulation. And I would say, will we ever learn? And the reality is that if they're doing that, it's only for a short period of time. And I would doubt, even though it may have a short-term amelioration of the downside, I would doubt that you could sustain anything by doing that um, in a meaningful way. But my overriding point would be, how stupid are we not learning our lessons from the past when all of this nonsense is what created the problems in the first place? And I would put to you that this is a great example of financial greed and this is a great example of why I would be more worried about the next GFC, not less. So I'm sorry if that. that, that hopefully that answers Max in some way, shape, or form, or doesn't. But uh, that makes me more nervous, not less.
0: Yeah. Well, not not a very hopeful note to end on it. But as you've shown, <laughs> you know, if you if you keep your powder dry and you tie and you wait until the bottom of the market, even something as bad as another GFC can set can set people up for the longer term
2: yeah you only get one of those in your lifetime i hope guys but um in your investing lifetime but if if it happens i hope you're there with a wad of cash ready to uh, to take advantage of whatever opportunities
1: it shows you so do i i'll be draining my credit card that's for sure <laughs> yeah that's,
2: that's that's a little known trick isn't it <laughs>
0: All right, Michael. Thank well, thank you so much for coming and having a chat with us. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will look at Pythagoras and reach out to you on social media to see some of the work you're doing now and into the future.
1: Yeah, thank really appreciate guys. it, Michael. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may
0: pertain to your individual situation.
1: What do you